is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Uh, Malachi is right at the end of the Hebrew Scriptures. The easiest way to find it is go to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and turn left just a little bit. Um, there you will find the book of Malachi, and we're going to look at chapter 3, verses 6 through 12 uh, together in just a moment. While you're turning there, I want to ask you a question, and here it is. How deep does the gospel penetrate into your life? Uh, that is, how far into who you are and what you do and how you spend yourself does the story of the death of Christ uh, for our sins and his resurrection, how far does that message go into your life? There's a variety of answers you can have to that question. Some of you, perhaps you don't know much about it and it's just something you're hearing new and it goes just an inch or two into your life. Some of you, it penetrates deep. Let me, let me share with you some uh, examples to help prod your thinking. I know a young man who uh, grew up in a Christian home. He was practically born in Sunday school, and he spent a lot of time at his church. He also grew up in a home that, that they loved to read. And uh, he uh, uh, picked up this habit, and he loved mystery uh, books. Agatha Christie, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, Sherlock Holmes. When he was in junior high, a missionary from their church challenged him. He said, um, you should be reading the New Testament aggressively. So he started this plan, 15 chapters a day, every day reading through the New Testament. Uh, Philippians 4 says that followers of Christ are to set their minds on things that are pure and lovely and good and praiseworthy. <laughs> It's hard to go from reading about murder to reading about things that are pure, lovely, praiseworthy, of good repute. So um, he decided to clean out his library. And he got everything that he owned that featured murder or stealing or deception, and he got rid of it. Now, perhaps this is not the best example uh, because this seems somewhat like a pendulum-type reaction Howard Hendricks says the only time we're balanced is when we're swinging from one extreme to the other. And, and maybe this is on the, the other end of, of that decision. But uh, uh, maybe you don't need to throw away all of your books, but the gospel at least penetrated this far into his life. It went into his bookshelf. Has the gospel penetrated your bookshelf? Has it gotten that far in your life? Uh, I know another young man who, who uh, had on his computer and on his MP3 player a wide assort, assortment of pirated music. Now, if you don't know what pirated music is about, it is not about eye patches, peg legs, and buried treasure. Uh, pirated music is music that you download from the Internet that you don't pay for. It's a violation of copyright rules. It's really easy, it's totally illegal, and it's immoral. It's stealing. So... Uh, this uh, second young man was in faithfully involved in his congregation, and it wasn't a missionary, it was his friends. Man, they got all over him about this. Uh, and, and after some prodding, he went home, cleaned out his music collection. It's inconsistent with the gospel to steal, uh, and, and the gospel went all the way to this guy's MP3 player. Has it gone that far in your life? I have a third friend who, who lives in Dallas, and the gospel went all the way into his commute how far it penetrated into his life. Uh, if you drive around the highways of Dallas, there are huge billboards right along the, the major highways in the city of Dallas advertising gentlemen's clubs. If you don't know what a gentleman's club is, trust me, there are no gentlemen there. 
they advertise these gentlemen's clubs, and usually on the billboard is a picture of young woman, a young woman not wearing enough clothes and not in a very comfortable position. And every day, this guy would drive by these billboards. It's hard to fight for purity when you're exposed to that every day. So he decided he would change his commute. Takes him longer to get to work, uh, but he goes to work with greater peace of mind. The gospel penetrated to his commute. How far does the gospel go into your life? This morning, I want to talk to you about the gospel going all the way to your wallet. Now, if I were sitting in a congregation and I heard a pastor start to talk about the gospel and my wallet, this would be my response. Oh, nuts. I especially think that if I had invited a friend, you know, you, you work up the courage to welcome somebody to church, to invite them to church. It's the day we take communion. And I say that if you're not a part of the, the faithful, don't take communion. So you're out from that. And then pastor starts talking about money on nuts of all the Sundays to invite your friend. Uh, pastors have a bad reputation for when it comes to talking about money. Some of us really deserve it. Can I tell you a secret? Um, Do you know what preachers say to themselves when they come across a paragraph like the one before us in the Bible that talks about money? Preachers say, oh, nuts. We're studying Malachi. I love this book. This is a great book of the Bible. But it's it's full of hard things. And Malachi speaks in a hard way. Uh, We've spoken so far as we go through Malachi about election, divorce, worship, and now money. None of those things are controversial, are they? (laughs) A few weeks ago, I was complaining to Pastor Scott about this, about the difficulty that I was having as we're working through Malachi, and he looked at me and he said, well, didn't you pick it? (laughs) I mean, didn't you choose this book? No, it's forcing you to preach through Malachi. I don't complain to him anymore about that. There are two reasons why we're going to talk about money uh, today. We're, uh, there are more reasons than this to talk about it, but this is what's driving us today. We're talking about money because the Bible talks about money. We're committed to exposing ourselves to the whole counsel of God. We're committed to going through books of the Bible. And if you are committed to that, you can't dodge passages like this. They're all the way through the scriptures. Uh, it's not our job to change this book or argue with this book or make excuses for this book. It's our job to obey this book. That's why we're talking about money today. The second reason that we're talking about money today is because, as I learned from a book that uh, Bill Hybels wrote several years ago, we care at our church more about your heart than about your wallet. But because we care about your heart, we have to talk to you about your wallet too. It was Jesus himself who said that your heart follows your money. You care about what you spend your money on. You want to change what you love, change how you spend. Because wherever your treasure is, Jesus said, there your heart goes also. A couple of weeks ago, the Lancaster Sunday News had a review of a new book that came out about Ronald Reagan's assassination. Did you see that review in the the section of the the newspaper? Um, One of the things that the reviewer said was that we didn't know when Reagan was assassinated Uh, in the 80s, how badly he was actually hurt. He was wounded quite a bit worse than we thought. In fact, when doctors found the bullet, it was lodged only inches from his heart. So the gospel is a bullet that is supposed to penetrate all the way in, 
all the way to the center of who you are, not to kill you, though Paul does use that image, but, but to, to transform you, all of you. And this morning I want to talk about how it changes what you think about money. So first we're going to read the text, shall we? Malachi 3, verses 6 through 12. You follow along in your copy of the Bible as I read from mine. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? You, uh, yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed. For yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. I want you to see three things in this passage this morning. I want you to show you, first of all, some things that never change. Then I want to show you some things that must change. And then third, I want to talk about how change happens. So some things that never change, some things that must change, and how change happens. Let's start. Some things never change. There are two things in this text that do not change. Number one, God. God does not change. Verse 6 says very clearly, I, the Lord, do not change. God is speaking here about His character, His nature, how He relates to people. I am consistent, God is saying. The technical theological term for this is immutability. God is immutable. Uh, He does not change. He is never inconsistent. He never grows. He never develops. He never declines. God does not, well, he doesn't sleep, so he doesn't wake up. But God does not wake up any day and say, I never knew that. Uh, Wayne Grudem describes uh, immutability this way. God is unchanging in his being, his perfections, his purposes and promises. Yet God does does act and feel emotions, and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. God is, God was, God always has been perfect. He does not need to change. He does not change. Now, if, if we were taking a theology class, we might take time right now to look at a couple of the passages in the Bible where God, speaking of himself, has regrets. You know about those passages. You you know where they are in the Bible. God changes his mind. Or God says, I'm sorry that I made human beings. That's in Genesis 6. He was sorry that he had made us. See, these passages, those passages, rather than telling us that God has changed, they are there to indicate to us that God really interacts with us. He has a real relationship with us. And if God expresses sorrow or regret or changes his mind, he is still acting in a way that's consistent with his nature. We would expect God to respond that way to us. Um, If God's decrees, if God's um, pronouncement about a city like Nineveh changes, 
it's because we would expect God to do that. that that's the way God is. God is uh, consistent. He's not unpredictable. He, he uh, does not act on whims. He always hates sin. He always loves his children. He always responds to sinners. And he always gives and gives and gives and gives. Actually, the text points out that it's God's unchanging nature that has kept the people of Jacob alive. I don't change, so you are not destroyed. Even though, in the book of Malachi, you guys are a bunch of complaining whiners, I do not change, God says, and I protect you, and I provide for you. So that's the aspect of, of God's character that is at the center of, his, of this passage is God's generosity. Like, that's the most important part of this. God is unbelievably generous. In fact, God tells the people, you test me in this. He says, you see if you can outgive me. I'm so generous and I have not changed in that regard. You will never be able to outgive me. Can you remember uh, while we were studying um, the book of Mark, we came across a woman in Mark chapter 7. She's one of my favorite characters, I think, in the Gospel of Mark. We don't even know her name, but she was uh, from Syrophoenicia, which is outside of, of Palestine. Her daughter was sick, and she came to Jesus one day, and she said, Jesus, would you heal my daughter? Would you cast this demon that's, that's in her outside? Uh, would you cast it out of her? <laughs> and Jesus is pushing her a little bit. He's testing her faith. And, She's not a Jew, and she hasn't received these promises like the, the Jews haven't. So Jesus pushes her a little bit, and he says, oh, Well, ma'am, it's not right for me to, to, to ignore the children at the table, the Jewish children at the table, and, and not feed the dogs, uh, and feed the dogs first. I, I should take care of the, the people who have received the promises, the Jews first. The woman answers him and she says, yes, Jesus, but even the dogs eat the crumbs off the children's table. And Jesus smiles at her. He grants her her wish. And, 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 and what that woman knows is that she knows that even the crumbs off of God's table are enough. God is so generous. He always has been. He always will be. He's so kind that even the crumbs from his table are enough for us. Uh, God has not changed. There is something else, though, in this passage that has not changed. The Jews have not changed. The human beings, and this is not good. This is bad consistency. It's good that God is consistent. It's bad that the people are uh, consistent because they have been consistently disobedient. Verse 7. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. That word turned away is one of the most important words in the prophets. Whenever you see this word, it, it's used all the time. And it describes someone who has in rebellion against God, like uh, um, a child who turns his back on his parents, on, on her mother, on his father. Uh, you should see yourself here at this point in time. Uh, there are elements in your life, are there not attitudes, uh, behaviors, patterns, that you have struggled with for years. Isn't that true of you? Things that, that you wish would be changed about you, that you, 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 know, you get a couple weeks success and then bam, there you are back in your old habits and patterns, this consistently failing God's standards. When are you going to get rid of your anger problem? 
What are you going to do? Is there ever a time that you will get tired of lust? But your cynicism, your, your self-righteousness, your self-pity, you're going to ever move on beyond that? Malachi, isn't he realistic about human nature? Doesn't Malachi know us well? According to the Bible, we're born separated from God and we spend our lives naturally turning away from Him, ignoring what He says, disobeying His commands, denying His authority. And oh, the Bible promises terrible, terrible things for those who turn away from God. You can actually see how much they've turned away from God. They've turned away so much that when Jesus, when uh, the prophet says, or when God says, return to me and I'll return to you, they don't even know that they need to turn back. They say, really? How? How are we supposed to return? This is not a question of ignorance. They're not coming before God and saying, oh God, show me my faults. They're saying to God, really? I, I mean, I think we're pretty together here. I think we have things pretty well straightened out. I mean, doesn't seem to be anything wrong as far as I can tell. And they're so turned away, they're turned around. They don't know what's right and what's wrong. Uh, In light of who God is, in light of God's generosity, in light of God's kindness, it it is foolish to turn away from Him. Some things never change. Uh, Secondly, I want you to see in this text, though, that some things must change. Some things must change. Chiefly, their attitude toward money must change. And the change talk begins at the end of verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you. Again, just like that word turned away, the word return is one of the most important words in the prophets. You see return. Whenever you see that word, make a note of it. It's a very important word in, in the Bible. Turn back to God. Return to me. And they, well, how? And now in verse 8, God gets very specific with them. God is demanding that they repent. And here is a way, here is one very specific way. Their repentance is supposed to go so deep in their lives that it's supposed to get to their wallets. And in these verses here, he, uh, the Malachi is, is floating here on two basic assumptions that the Bible makes about money. The Bible says more than this, but this is basic to what the Bible says about money. Assumption number one, God is the owner of all things. God owns everything. Everything is His. Total ownership is His right as Creator. He made everything. That's why He speaks of them robbing Him. He's assuming, I own everything and you are robbing Me. If they hold what He has demanded as Creator, they're robbing Him. The Old Testament talks about robbing here, and the New Testament talks about the concept of stewardship. You're just stewarding, taking care of the things God has given you. I had a friend in in uh, college, when he was a little boy, his dad took him to McDonald's. His dad used to remind him of this story all the time. That's why when he was in college, he still remembered it. Well, his friend, his, a friend of mine, he's a little boy, and his dad took him to McDonald's, and they ordered at the counter, and his dad paid, uh, and they were sitting down to eat their lunch, and his dad said to him, hey, can I have a couple of your french fries? The little boy said, no, they're mine. You can't have them. <laughs> now, there were several things at that point in time that that little boy did not realize. Number one, he did not realize that his, bat, his dad had just paid for those french fries. He owned those french fries. Second thing that that little boy did not realize is that his dad had huge hands and he was a little boy and if his dad wanted, he could take those french fries 
from him. He was not going to win in that contest. The third thing that that little boy did not realize at that point in time is that his dad, with the money in his wallet, could have bought 50 pounds of French fries and could have given 50 pounds of French fries to that little boy, so much so that he would have French fries coming out of his nose by the time he left that restaurant. God has given you everything that you own. He can take it if he wants, and he can give you more and more and more until you can't possibly spend it all. God owns everything. Are you saying, no, it's mine? Actually, that leads to basic assumption number two about this money that this text has. God has the right to tell me how to manage my money. This is not something that the people realize. It's something that has to change in their attitude towards money. That God has the right to tell me how to manage my money. And here we enter into the Old Testament discussion of tithes and offerings. Verse 8 says, bring in the tithe. Well, verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Um, God demanded here in the Old Testament that his people, the Jews, set aside a portion of their income and give it to him. Why? Not because God needed it. God doesn't need any of the money that you have. God doesn't need any of the service that you do at church. God doesn't need your friendship. By giving this command, though, to the people, God is teaching them that he is more valuable than their money. He is more to be cherished. He's more to be treasured. He's more to be valued than anything that, that they can buy with their money. We pray like this sometimes before we, pray the off, before we receive the offering, don't we? God, we love you more than the things that we could buy with this money. And so we're giving it. That's why giving is such an important discipline. You remind yourself of that when you give. Now, in some circles, this would be the perfect opportunity for me to tell you that you are obligated to give 10% of your income to the church, that you should be tithing. If we were a Southern Baptist church, that would be very easy to do at this point in time. I don't think, though, that that is um, uh, the obligation that Malachi is setting upon us. Here's why. I think this is one of the passages in the Bible that we can go to when we talk about the fact that there is a discontinuity or differences between what the Old Testament required of God's people, the Jews, and what the New Testament requires of those of us who are followers of Christ. This is an element, an example of discontinuity. Uh, Let me explain. Under the law of Moses, the law under which these men and women lived, tithing was a form of taxation. God was the leader of the nation. He appointed the king. He established the religious uh, practices. And tithing was how they supported the system that God had established. It was the form of taxation for them. Uh, and, and the people actually were obligated to pay more than one tithe. You would pay one tithe every year at festival time when you go. You'd take 10% of your income. You could enjoy some of it in the temple. The rest of it you left there. Uh, it went to the priests. It went to maintain the building. Another 10% was specifically designated for the Levites to pay for them. The Levites were the people in in the nation of Israel who were responsible for uh, doing the sacrifices and for um, uh, uh, teaching God's word. We talked about the Levites a few weeks ago. Um, And uh, that 10% went to them so that they could be busy about their work, so they wouldn't be out farming, uh, raising their food. They would live off the 10% that, that was required. Uh, Every third year, there was another tithe that you you were required to bring that went specifically to the poor. 
And when you add all of these tithes together, plus some other fees and payments that the New Testament or the Old Testament uh, requires, most scholars spe- uh, speculate that the Jews paid 20 to 25 percent annually of their income. Now, if you want to talk about tithing in a real Old Testament sense, I will anticipate your 25% donation this year. Uh, the New Testament actually has a different standard for giving, which we're going to talk about in, in just a minute. But this passage not only talks about a different uh, form of giving, it also talks about a different reward for giving. There's another discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The requirement for tithing was for the Jews living under the law of Moses. So the reward that God promises in this passage is for the Jews living under the law of Moses. What's the reward God offers? He says, bring the tithe and I will bless you in ways you cannot imagine. You won't have room to, to, give you, to receive all the blessings that I'm going to give you. Now, there are preachers today um, who tell you to tithe. And there are preachers today who also tell you that if you tithe, God will bless you by giving you more money. It's it's called the prosperity gospel. It's called the health and wealth gospel. It's the idea that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And then if you're not healthy and wealthy, either you don't have enough faith or you're not planting seeds enough. Um, And if you just give, if you just give me 10%, Uh, These preachers say, God will bless you. He'll provide for you. That Mercedes will be yours if you give 10% of your money. Uh, uh, This is the promise that that comes. I was um, (laughs) working one time uh, answering calls for a radio program that Joe Stoll, the president of Moody uh, Bible Institute, had. Some of you probably used to listen to Proclaim with Joe Stoll on WDAC. I worked for the company that would receive phone calls uh, into the, the radio station. And we would ask people why they were calling, what they wanted, and, and um, uh, we would ask, do you have any prayer requests? And we also would ask, would, are you interested in making a donation to Proclaim? And a woman answered on the phone said to me, yes, I'm going to give you $10. It's seed money because I'm looking for 100 to come back. Somebody had told her that if you just give a little, God is obligated. He will bless you. The way to jumpstart the generosity of God is to give more now. The prosperity gospel is a lie. It's a damnable lie refuted 10,000 times in the New Testament. We do not have that promise under God. We are not Jews. We are not living in the land of Palestine. We do not live under the law of Moses. This is not true. And those preachers who proclaim it are uh, charlatans and liars and the New Testament condemns them over and over and over again. Despite what those preachers say, D.A. Carson uh, said once, it is still true that Christians get old and wrinkly. God does not promise us that. Uh, we're going to talk about that New Testament standard of giving, and, and I want to do so now under our third heading this morning, how change happens, how change happens. So some things never change. God does not change, and unfortunately, uh, it appears that we don't change very much either. Secondly, some things must change, chiefly our attitude toward money. Third, how does that change happen? This is a great passage. We've already been doing it a little bit for talking about the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. God does not change between the Old and the New Testament. 
Um, he wants everyone everywhere to know that he is valuable, that he's to be treasured. But he teaches that lesson in different ways with the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the predominant theme is command, it's law, it's obligation, it's rules to follow. God valued the hearts of his people in the Old Testament, that is true. But looming over them was the law, the command, you must give this part of your income. Every night, um, I make sure that my children brush their teeth. It is law in my house. I am the looming sovereign. I am the toothpaste boss. And I make sure that they brush their teeth. It is the law of the Medes and the Persians not to be changed that before you go to bed, you must brush your teeth. Um, did you brush your teeth before you came to church this morning because there was a looming uh, toothpaste policeman over you making sure you brush your teeth? Um, if you only brush your teeth because there is a looming person over you telling you you must brush your teeth, it's a sign that you are not a mature person. My hope for my children is that when they reach a certain point of time, they will brush their teeth because they want to brush their teeth. Not because I am the toothpaste policeman, but because they enjoy and delight in having clean, pearly white teeth. Especially because I'm paying for braces. See, Paul tells us in Galatians that the Old Testament law functions like a looming tutor, like a schoolmaster. Looming over you, making sure you, use the words, uh, brush your teeth, do your homework, pay your tithe, follow the law. Now in the New Testament, things change. The primary focus now, after Christ has come and died and risen from the dead, is on internal change. Again, not obedience because of this looming rules, but obedience because you want to change. See, what looms over you in the New Testament is not the law, but what fills the horizon is, is your vision in the New Testament is Jesus himself. And, and understanding who he is and what he has done will change you. That's, that's Paul's belief. Uh, Pastor Scott read a few minutes ago from 2 Corinthians 8. How does Paul appeal to them to give? He does it all the way through chapters 8 and 9. He appeals to the Corinthians by saying this, for you know, you know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. This is how the church changes people. This is how the gospel changes people, by stunning you with a vision of the superiority of Christ. Every sacrifice changes you. Think about this. Um, I've told you before that Kathy and I, a few years ago, well, many, many years ago, went to San Antonio, Texas, and we saw the Alamo. Perhaps you remember me talking about the Alamo. Um, the Alamo, of course, is that, that mission building in San Antonio, Texas, um, in a siege that lasted 13 days, 200 Texans defended the Alamo against a force of thousands led by General Santa Ana from Mexico. You know some of the names. You know the story. William Travis, Davy Crockett, Jim Bowie, they all died there. Uh, they thought that, that the Alamo, that San Antonio was a central part in the war for Texas independence, and they died there defending that belief. And, and their death inspired uh, Americans, right? So that when they went to fight the battle, do you remember what the rallying cry was? Remember the Alamo. 
And Paul says, when the offering plate is passed and you see it go by, at that point in time, you should say, remember Jesus Christ. Be changed, be stunned by His sacrifice. He is the ultimate sacrifice. And, and seeing it, understanding it changes you. By the way, we should note that this is how the gospel changes people. We do not change people by burning their holy books. Uh, we don't change people who don't believe in Jesus by insulting them, by attacking them. Uh, we don't change people who don't believe in Jesus Christ by mobbing them and beheading those who disagree with us. Christians don't burn books. Christians are burned for the book. Uh, we change people not by violence, but by stunning them with the glory of Jesus Christ, what he has done. Uh, uh, God entered a world through his son that was filled with people who hated him. He didn't have to do anything to rescue us. He was completely happy in himself. We deserved his fiery wrath. But God in his son died for us. He lived a perfect life. He rose from the dead. Um, he was rich. He had never known what it was like to be hungry. He never known what it was like to be thirsty or tired uh, or, or, or hot. He, 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 this rich Jesus in his father's home became homeless here on earth. He lived that perfect life. He died that horrible death. No one had ever lashed out in him in anger before, before he set foot on earth. He, he, he bore the penalty we owed. He became poor, poor under his father's wrath. And, and Paul wants you to see Jesus' death, not just as a payment for your sin, but as a model for how you live. In fact, Paul thinks that knowing about Jesus Christ is enough to change your attitude about money. One way that you can tell if the gospel has really sunk in, if it's really changed you, is how by as, is how tightly you hold on to your money. This is how change happens in the New Testament. If you are a stingy person, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done has not worked itself down into your heart. And if it has not changed your attitude toward money, oh, Jesus gave up everything for me, why would I not give for someone else? If, if, if that, the, the gospel has not sunk down that far you should ask yourself, what does Paul know? What did the Macedonians know about Jesus' sacrifice that I don't? You are missing something about the gospel. Early on in, in chapter 8, uh, Pastor Scott read it. Uh, the, the Macedonians that, he, that Paul's writing about, he, he says they have overflowing joy. Jesus Christ has so filled them with joy that, that it overflows, and it overflows in their generosity. In fact, in, in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 8, it's astounding. Paul says that they had extreme poverty and overflowing joy. What do you get when you add extreme poverty and overflowing joy? You get immense generosity. They are so stunned by Jesus Christ's glory that has overflowed in their lives and they're showering this generosity on, on people. So you could ask the question here, in the Old Testament, God demanded 10% and he blessed his people beyond their ability to handle it. In Christ, in the New Testament, you've been given every spiritual blessing. You've been set free from eternal hell. You've been reconciled to God through His Son. Why are you keeping 90% of what you have? 
in light of, of this greatness. So I want to finish by making three uh, practical suggestions as you think about the role that generosity, that giving plays in your life. Just three quick suggestions here. Number one, make a plan for your giving. Make a plan for your giving. If you don't have a plan in advance, you won't be a generous person. Come to church on Sunday knowing what you're going to give, knowing what you're going to put in the offering plate. Don't fumble at the last minute for your wallet. You'll pull it out and you'll be like, oh, there's two ones and a ten. I can't get change on the offering plate. What am I going to do? Um, uh, have a plan before you sit and you can't get, please trust me, you cannot get change out of the offering plate. Uh, what are you going to do here? A dollar isn't enough, but I need the ten for stamp. I, you know, so have a plan before you get here. Um, <laughs> do you know, the, the chief usefulness in my life of offering envelopes, I, they use it for their accounting system in the office. For me, the chief usefulness of that is it helps me keep track of my plan. I, I tend to do our, our finances, go over them uh, once a month, balance the checkbook, pay the, pay the bills. Um, I do it w- once a month. and I square everything a- away once a month. So, sometimes I, I write checks more often than that, but that box and those envelopes is very useful to me. Because I, they keep track. How many, have I missed a couple of weeks? Is it, have I, one, two, three, I count. And I multiply it by the number that we have decided to give every week. And I send my checks in. Actually, I give it to office, believe it or not. Uh, number two, have a plan. Number two, include sacrifices in your plan. Include sacrifices in your plan. Figure it out now. Ask yourself today, what are you going to give up for the sake of the gospel? Because God is more valuable than anything you can buy with your money. What are you going to give up? Is there something that you're going to give up this week for the sake of the gospel? Talk about it at lunch with your friends. Maybe that's what you should give up. Uh, Or at your house. What can we as a family, what can I as an individual sacrifice this week for the sake of the gospel? And when you talk about it with your family, do it with a smile. Dad, why don't we drink uh, Coke anymore? We don't drink Coke anymore because we're not going to spend our money on carbonated drinks when we can give it to Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, this week I was at a conference, and uh, uh, there was a, a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama. Actually, the, the uh, young adults are reading a book uh, by him, David Platt. And, and several years, uh, a couple of years ago, he led his church through this major rethinking about their budget. And they slashed their budget so they could spend, send every penny they had as a church overseas. They cut their worship budget by like 83%. And one of the things that they cut was giving goldfish crackers to their children. There are no starving children in their church. Kids don't need crackers, so they don't give them snacks. They don't pay money for goldfish. <laughs> now, Sunday school teachers could go in the class every week and say, well, children, no goldfish today. <laughs> in fact, David Platt, I saw him, he was highly criticized for taking away goldfish from his children at his church. But if a Sunday school teacher goes in and says, no goldfish, because there's people in the world who don't know about Jesus Christ, and we want them to know because he's so wonderful. Actually, uh, when he was criticized, a little boy in his church uh, wrote a note, and it was posted on the Internet, and the note said, Goldfish, we don't need no stinking goldfish. <laughs> They're getting it, right? What's on your list? What are you going to slash? 
What are you going to sacrifice? I trust me, you will never regret anything that you sacrifice for Jesus Christ. Never. All right, number three. Dedicate any increases this year to God. Dedicate any increases this year to God. Is anybody getting a raise in this economy? Nobody's getting a raise in this economy. But uh, what if it happens to you or an unexpected bonus comes to you? Did God provide that money for you so that you could eat out more or so that you could go on a better vacation? Or is it his means of providing more for his work through you? It's a, it's a, 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 I have a rhyme for you. It's kind of sad. Ready? When God gives you more money, don't raise your standard of living. Raise your standard of giving. Right? If you do, you will make the best choice that you can possibly make. How do I know it's the best choice? Because I know, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, became poor for our sake, so that you, so that I, through his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we're grateful to you today for your word. It speaks to our heart issues. Um, Father, you know every, every single one of us are, are live in this world that, that things dazzle and shine and glitter and they call to us. Uh, and they, they scream at us that we need them. Uh, we need new electronic gadgets. We need a bigger house. We need a new set of dishes. We need more clothes. We need goldfish. Oh, God, we thank you that the Bible tells us that we needed a Savior and you provided him for us. So help us to walk in his path the one who became poor for our sake. Father, you give and you give and you give. You satisfy us. Satisfy us with your unfailing love, with overflowing joy that would splash generosity on those around us. Do that for your son's sake who is worth knowing and worth sacrificing for. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.